Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, David Blair. On the show this week, radical reform of the electricity market here in the UK... The fact that conservatives have embraced renewables and the fact that they're looking at a carbon tax and some of these big issues are a very big thing. And they also think that this contract for difference is really a more refined feed-in tariff, which I think is actually smart. The Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, meets fierce resistance over her carbon pricing plan. It's much broader, and it has, as a result, created quite a stir among some of the industries. Qantas, for example, the national airline, is saying they're going to have to put up domestic fares. The coal industry is also complaining that it's going to mean massive amount of job losses. However, it has to be said that there is enormously generous compensation built into this package. And the US-based Peabody Energy makes a play for mining company MacArthur Coal. It's a bit of a vanishing breed of second-tier, substantially-sized mining company with good assets that has not already been bought by one of the multinationals. Let's start this week's show here in the UK and the rather long-awaited white paper on the electricity market. Chris Hoon, the Energy Secretary, yesterday claimed to have ended 25 years of dithering with what he's calling radical reform. The plans outlined in the white paper have been designed to unlock £110 billion of investment in new generating capacity by 2020. Joining me in the studio is the former Speaker of the Californian Assembly and the founder of G24 Innovations, Bob Hertzberg. Bob, welcome. Can we begin with your public policy hat on? Just how radical do you think Chris Hewn has been? I do think there's some good good messages here, some really good messages. And the first and foremost message is the fact that conservatives have embraced renewables and the fact that they're looking at a carbon tax and some of these big issues are a very big thing. And they also think that this contract for difference is really a more refined feed-in tariff, which I think is actually smart. Are Chris Hewn's reforms enough for people like you to invest more in renewable energy here in the UK? Do they give you what you need? Yeah, I, I think they, the, the cornerstone, look, it's a white paper. And I, from a public policy point of view, I think what he did is the right thing. He outlined, look, these are hard things to deal with, not because, because they're hard to deal with. They're hard to deal with because we live in a democracy and everybody has a piece and an interest, and you're trying to both cobble together a way forward uh, that has some sense and also figure out how you're going to navigate your way through the politics. So I think the framework is good. I think there's still a lot of open questions, but he dealt with the issues of what it takes for an entrepreneur like me to come to a country to say you want to invest, and that is giving certainty and price signal. On the point about certainty, the contract for difference uh, allows a fixed price. So to that extent, it does provide a great degree of certainty. But it has been suggested that that's a much better framework for a nuclear power operator than it is for the provider of intermittent energy via a renewable technology like wind or solar. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think it is true. But look, I'm not a big nuclear fan. I know that that's an issue 
uh, in the UK and other parts of of Europe, certainly Japan, Germany, other countries have have pulled back on that. And I think you're going to see more pullback on it. I think technology is going to change. I think it's going to be less expensive to come up with other alternatives to grow the renewable space. And I I just think that's what you're going to see over time. Uh, I just think it's a short-term view. Uh, The longer-term view is the technology. When you look at what's going on today, if they can just get some market share and get some backing, I think you're going to see some fundamental sea changes in how we look at energy production. The UK government's target is to generate 30% of our electricity from renewable sources by 2020. That's the whole purpose of this white paper. Do you think it will succeed? Have they done enough? I think it's a, a step in the right direction. Like, I, I look at this as a huge step. I mean, I, I don't know the politics, the historical politics in, in, in the UK about how big this issue is in terms of how what a sea change is over the last 25 years. But I do think the fact that we have a conservative government in this country that has embraced renewables, that by 2020 they're looking to get to a third down of because of their environmental reasons or safety reasons or whatever is a big movement forward. I think that Nine or ten years in this new world order is a lot of time. Rate of change is extraordinary. And so I do think there's an opportunity for that to happen. We certainly have the same standard in California. Thanks very much, Bob. Let's move to Australia and plans announced at the weekend by the Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, which could put the country on track to having the biggest emissions trading system outside of Europe. Joining me in the studio to discuss the details is the FT's environment correspondent, Polita Clark. Polita, can you tell us first exactly what changes has Australia's government made? At the heart of this package is a $23 per tonne carbon tax, and that's going to apply to some 500 companies. And it's going to rise by 2.5% per year from the moment it's introduced. It's supposed to be coming in next year until July 2015, when it's supposed to turn into an emissions trading scheme similar to the one that we've had here in Europe since 2005. So That will, in fact, mean that, assuming it all gets passed by Parliament later this year, and there's a slight if about that because the numbers are very fine, but assuming it does get passed, it will mean that Australia will probably have the world's second largest emissions trading scheme after Europe. When you say it will apply to 500 companies, what kind of companies are we talking about? Is it just electricity generators or does it go broader? No, it's not. It's much broader. It immediately applies, for example, to airlines. And um, as you know, there's been quite a fiery debate here in Europe because they've finally got around to including airlines in the European ETS. So it's much broader and it has, as a result, created quite a stir amongst some of the industries. Qantas, for example, the national airline, is saying they're going to have to put up domestic fares. The coal industry is also complaining that it's going to mean massive amount of job losses. However, it has to be said that there is enormously generous compensation built into this package as well, not just for the companies, not just for the coal industry, but also for ordinary consumers. There are going to be quite sizable increases in the tax-free threshold, for example, from something like, I think, 6000 to 18000 which is very generous, because essentially what's happening is they're not using the revenue raised uh, just to go into government coffers. It's going to be put back because it's a behaviour-changing exercise rather than a revenue raising exercise. One of the other interesting things they're doing is setting up a $10 billion Australian dollar clean energy finance corporation, which is going to be similar to the Green Investment Bank that we have here in the UK, only it's going to basically start off with about no more than twice as much as, um, as what's going to be seen here in the UK. So that's one thing that investors are really honing in on. The early thinking on that is that it's going to mean quite a boost for solar energy. And so there's a, a lot of interest amongst the analysts in, uh, in how that's going to work and what's going to be available. 
And are businesses actually changing their decisions because of this policy? Is it already having an impact? Well, interestingly and fortuitously for Prime Minister Gillard, the day after the announcement of the carbon tax, Peabody, the US Energy Group and ArcelorMittal announced a $5 billion joint bid for Queensland's MacArthur coal mine. I know we're going to talk about that later in the podcast, but that has certainly muted a lot of the criticism that we were starting to hear from the industry that this was going to deter this sort of investment. Far from it, it seems. It's going along as planned and, in fact, coming the day after. Police. Thank you very much. And keeping with Australia, let's move to our final topic for today, the Australian miner MacArthur Coal. As Polita just said, bids to take over the mining company have been made by US-based Peabody Energy. Joining me in the studio to discuss the potential deal is the FT's mining correspondent, Will McNamara. Will, tell us about this potential deal. When is it expected to actually happen? Well, it's happening right now. What we know so far is that ArcelorMittal, one of the world's biggest steel makers, and Peabody Energy, the world's largest coal miner, have joined forces in a 60-40 joint venture to make an offer at Australian $15.50 a share and a roughly $4.7 billion deal. The structure of the deal is very similar to one that Peabody made standalone last year. That was at $16 a share. It fell to 15 But the bottom line is that coking coal, which MacArthur Coal mines in Australia, is a booming market right now. According to a lot of analysts, prices are only going up. There is not a lot of it. What there is is in um, Australia in the hands of very few people. So MacArthur is a rare asset. It's not the world's best coking coal. It's a special type of it called pulverized. It's essentially lower quality coking coal. But there's a very clear business rationale for what they're doing. MacArthur coal is a very worthwhile target. Yeah, it is a target that's drawn a lot of interest, the proof being last year when it was the object of a three-way tussle involving all sorts of companies and potential consortia to take it over. It's a bit of a vanishing breed of second-tier, substantially-sized mining company with good assets that has not already been bought by one of the multinationals. What's Uh, its principal market? Where does this coking coal get sold? Straight to China. Coking coal is different from the coal we use in our power plants. Coking coal makes steel. Along with iron ore, it is the ingredient that makes steel. So anyone who buys this is betting that Chinese steel mills will continue to be the world's biggest steel producers and feed China's internal infrastructure building boom. Because there is fewer high-quality coking coal mines in the world than there are iron ore mines, coking coal prices have been doing extremely well recently. But this is one more mining and metal story premised on the idea that China's manufacturing boom will continue in definitely. And in terms of the mining deal league table, where does this stand? How big a deal is this in mining terms? At the opening bell, at this first indicative offer of $5 billion, this would be one of the biggest pieces of M&A this year in the mining sector. And in terms of the overall strategic picture, would this change the balance between the, the global league table of mining giants? No, one thing that's interesting is Peabody Energy, which many people haven't heard of, despite it being the world's biggest pure standalone coal producer. It's a company out of St. Louis that is expanding abroad very aggressively. It stands to change perceptions of Peabody from more of a giant in the U.S. marketplace to a multinational. ArcelorMittal is obviously known as the world's biggest steel company, but this deal stands to change perceptions of it because it is one more proof that Mr. Mittal is executing a strategy of going upstream. Prices of all the ingredients that make his steel are very volatile. 
the two most important ingredients are coking coal and iron ore. So guess what Mr. Mittel's doing? He's buying iron ore mines and he's buying coking coal mines. And this ensures his supply and makes the price a little bit more reasonable. Voila, here we are. He's not going to own this company. ArcelorMittal stands to own a 40% stake in this 60-40 JV, but that still gives him a lot of interest. And lastly, you've spoken to us in the past about mining deals that have been vetoed by national governments. Is there any chance of uh, the Australian government making trouble over this? No, there wasn't much trouble made last year when MacArthur came close to being sold. The Australian government tends to be more laissez-faire about this, the exception being the Rio Tinto's failed tie-up with Chinalco in 2009. Thank you very much, Will. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Bob Hertzberg, Will McNamara, and Polita Clark. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.